beautiful time it is for us to gather in this place to be reminded and actually through our, through our singing to remind each other that indeed we are people who have a God whose mercy is more than all of our sin. God is hard to even begin to explain how much of a burden that reality alleviates. Lord, we come into this place this last week having been pummeled by so many things in this world, things vying for our time and our attention and our affections. We've sinned. We've been sinned against. God, we have done things for which we regret. There are things which are regrettable that we have seen and have to bear the consequences of. And yet, Lord, in all of this, we have a God who is eager to forgive. And Lord, the reality that you are more eager to forgive than we are to ask for forgiveness is telling of our own hearts. God, we repel the notion that you love us because we still have bought into a lie that somehow our religious performance is what wins your affections. Lord, would you remind us that Jesus has won all of your affections for us. And as you, our Father, will never reject Jesus, so you will never reject us. We are in him, and therefore, we are yours. And God, you possess us, not just with one hand, but with two. And nothing in this world can pluck us out of your hand. So God, with this kind of security and this kind of confidence, would you help us to be bold, to come to your throne room of grace with confidence, that in our time of need, we can ask and you will meet our needs, that you are a God who sees our every days, you see the foibles, you see the bad decisions, you see the outright sin, defiance, and yet you love us anyway. You clean us off. You pull us up onto our feet and you compel us to continue on. And so we thank you, Lord, for your grace and we thank you for your mercy. God, as we come now to your word, we do pray through the book of Hosea that you would teach us more of who you are, that we would behold your heart more fully, more clearly, that we would sense in our hearts and our minds a deeper affection and a deeper understanding of who you are. So God, illumine our minds through the Holy Spirit. Cause our affections and our hearts to arise to the level they ought to be. If we are uncaring and unfeeling this morning, God, break our hearts and cause us to overflow with joy. God, cause us to be the kinds of people who have gladness in our hearts for having a loving God, a saving God. God, cause within us these things. And we'll give you thanks for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ah, good morning, church. Just want to let you know there's a significantly higher number of people at this service than the first one. And uh, I don't know what to make of that other than somebody wanted to sleep in. And uh, that somebody is yours truly. Man, today was rough. I'm not going to lie. But I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad that you... Uh, made it to church, even if it was maybe later than you uh, had imagined or whatnot. Uh, my name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills, and I do want to welcome you. 
And uh, just thank you for being a part of uh, our gathering to worship the Lord today. And uh, we're gonna continue in a series through the book of Hosea. And so I wanna invite you to open up to chapter nine as we look through chapter nine and the rest of, our, the rest of chapter nine and through chapter 10 in our continuing series about how God relentlessly pursues his people. And as you do that, let me uh, tell you about a couple things going on uh, here at the church that are really uh, significant. Next Sunday, next Sunday, we are going to have baptisms. We have, I think it is four people following the Lord in baptism, and so it's gonna be right before the 1030 service. And so we've been trying to help people understand that one of the, one of the things we would want to do as a church is come early, stay late kind of concept which is come, come a little bit early, fellowship, let's hang out, let's spend some time together, and then stay late, stay after, and plan on talking to each other, and go uh, have lunch together, or whatever that is, but make sure that we're, we're trying to connect with each other. So, I encourage you to come early next week, as we're gonna celebrate uh, what the Lord has done in a, a couple folks' lives, um, as they give testimony to God's faithfulness and his grace in their lives, so that's next week. I wanna let you know, too, that uh, if you're interested in baptism, the last Sunday of March, we have our baptism class that you're free to sign up for and to join, and that way you can learn more about what baptism is and all of its significance. If you're a student and you don't wanna be a part of an adult baptism class, it's understandable, and so the first Sunday in April, uh, April 3rd, we have a baptism class for students that we invite you to go and join. It's gonna be in the student ministry office at 10.30. And then this is pretty cool. Um, we have Holy Week coming up, uh, Holy Week begins Palm Sunday, and it goes through Resurrection Sunday. And during the course of that week, we're going to have Monday, Thursday, and uh, we'll, we'll learn together what all that means. We'll um, share the Lord's Supper on that Thursday night. Friday night, we'll have Good Friday service. Uh, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to have an Easter uh, sunrise service, and then we'll have our regular um, services on that Sunday. We are doing a branding change. We don't want to call it Easter anymore. Easter has a connection to a lot of pagan deities and Easter bunnies and things like that. And so we want to Christianize the Christian holiday of Resurrection Sunday. Uh, so we want to celebrate the fact that the Lord is risen. And uh, so anyways, you'll hear us talk about Resurrection Day and you're like, what about Easter? And you're like, no, down with Easter. Um, but you know what we mean by that. Uh, during that week, we're gonna do some, some cool things and we'll send that out via email and we'll have some stuff on our website where we have family kind of devotional kind of stuff that will be made available. Uh, in the meantime, what we wanted to let you know, um, we started a Spotify playlist for Golden Hills Community Church and what we're doing there is we're actually having a lot of the songs that we sing here at church and so you can listen to those, familiarize with those, uh, yourself with that stuff uh, because we're gonna be talking about why we sing what we do and, and all that. And uh, in, the, in the months going forward. So I just wanted to let you know you can find that in the, a whole host of songs there. It's a really good playlist, and you will enjoy it. All right, as we continue on in this uh, series in Hosea, we're gonna look at the rest of chapter nine, which is verses 10 through 17, and we'll look at the entirety of chapter 10. Now, this is two chapters in the book of Hosea, which is highly, highly poetic, and there's lots of images, and you have to explain some of the history and whatnot, and so we have to jump right into it. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna help us understand uh, section by section what's going on here. Um, we are so disconnected from the culture and the history of what we're reading that it takes a good amount of explanation to understand what's happening. And so I'll read section by section, say some things, read some things, say some things, and we'll kind of alternate in that direction. But you can see that the title of the sermon is It's Time to Seek the Lord. And what this is is, is just an urgency. It's an urgent plea. It's go time. 
uh, because God said from last week, if you remember, that the days of punishment have come for Israel. Uh, time is up. He's already been encouraging them. He's been warning them. He's been challenging them. And now he's saying, enough's enough. I'm done with it. Uh, and now we need to just move on with the punishment aspect of it. And so it's time to seek the Lord. You can feel the urgency in this. And I remember playing baseball and football. I remember before games, you had to stretch and you had to get yourself loose and all that kind of stuff. But there was a moment when the umpires were done talking to the coaches and then finally they would roll the ball out to the pitcher's mound and we would gather together and we knew that we we're about to take the field and it's go time. And I loved go time. I didn't really like practice time. Go time. And uh, so this is go time. And this would be really good. So we're going to start in verses 10 through 14. And again, I'll read some things, say some things, and then we'll move on to verses 15 to 17. And then on and on we go uh, through this particular text. Here's what Hosea writes. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. That will not make it on a greeting card. I guarantee you. Wishing you a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. What is God doing here? Like, how can you read this and make sense of it? This seems horrible. And that's the point. It is horrible. It's absolutely atrocious what is happening here. First, we need to remember that Israel's past apostasy, that means when they didn't want anything to do with God, they abandoned God, they rejected God, that past decision to reject God is having real present consequences. If you remember, um, Israel was in the wilderness, and uh, at first it was this great relationship that God had with his people, and the people really loved the Lord, and they were so grateful for coming out of Egypt, and they were like, blessed be God, he's done everything for us, this is amazing, and then everything turns really sour really quick. And you actually see that in verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. Imagine yourself being out in the wild and you don't have any food, you're lost. You don't have a compass, you don't have GPS, you're just totally lost and you don't even know how to survive. I know you watch survival shows, but that's different than being able to survive in the, in the woods. And so you're looking for something edible um, and if it's red, you're dead, but that's all you know. But you're looking for something. You come across some berries and you're like eating berries and you find a nice little stream and you drink of it. If you're lost and scared and on the verge of death, when you come across berries and water, it's good. And that's what God is trying to depict. It's like that moment when you see something, when you're dying of thirst and you're dying of hunger, if you see something to satisfy the thirst and satisfy the hunger, that kind of satisfaction, that kind of joy that washes over you is how God describes his feelings for his people. I saw you. I loved it. 
It was awesome. And then we encounter the word but. They came to Baal Peor, consecrated themselves to the thing of shame, and became detestable like the thing they loved. While God was providing for Israel throughout their wilderness journey, they had turned their back on him more than once, particularly at this place called Peor. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you a little background of this. It comes from Numbers 25. The nation of Israel has been wandering in the wilderness, and they come to this place called Peor, which is in the land of Moab. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices. That is, these women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, which is Baal. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You see what's happening here. Israel is wandering in the wilderness. God is providing their every need. Their sandals are not wearing out. This is an amazing thing. They come to Moab. They see some ladies, and they're like, hey. And the lady's like, hey. And next thing you know, they're like, hey, you want to come to this little festival we got going on? They're like, all right, I'll come. We'll see what's up. And next thing you know, everyone's worshiping Baal, which involves sex, which involves all kinds of weird things going on. And if you read in verse 10, they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves, that is, they set themselves apart to this thing of shame, which is this detestable idol, it was something they loved. They loved it. They loved the idea that, you know what, Baal is a, a, a deity that represents prosperity, sexual expression, and ease of life. Does that sound remotely familiar to anybody? That's modern day. And they worshipped it. They worshipped. Oh, life is easy. I love easy. Quick and easy. Sexual, just do whatever you want. Woo, give me that. Prosperity. Woo. Who doesn't want a fast car and a nice house? They loved it. And then it says they became detestable, just like the thing they loved. They loved Baal worship because it promised them these things. But in the end, they ended up becoming like that thing. And I've said this before, you become what you worship. Whatever it is you worship, you end up becoming like that thing. If you worship power, you become all consumed by the power you worship. And as many of us understand, when somebody has a lot of power and they have a corrupted heart, it probably is not going to go well. And so you become corrupted and corruptible by what you worship. The principle is taught clearly in Scripture. For instance, like this, Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. So just think about this. You, you take silver and gold and you make something. And so these idols have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those people who make these idols become like them so do all who trust in them. In other words, if you want to put your trust and confidence and faith in something which has no life, then in the end you will get exactly that, which is no life. If you don't want life, 
You can have it. You become what you worship. There's no lasting, fulfilling thing outside of God that will give you what you think this thing will give. In other words, idols, whether it's deep heart, heart idols like security or comfort or approval, or whether it's material idols like money or sex or power, none of them will give you truly what you want. They will all come up short. The world will promise you a check that it cannot cash. But since we love the things that these idols promise, we eat it and drink it and we buy into it. And so that's what God is talking about here in verse 10. At first, man, we had this great thing going. But then they, they came to Peor and the nation, they just, they abandoned me. And they worshiped Baal. And so God is going to bring about a fitting judgment for Israel, verse 11, 12, and 13, where he talks about how Ephraim's glory is going to fly away, and he talks about the lack of fertility, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they do bring up children, he's going to take them away. And in fact, Ephraim was a fruitful palm, verse 13, but in the end, it's, going to, it's leading its children to slaughter. They think that they're being fruitful. They think that they're doing the right thing by way of their children, but in reality, they're just leading their children to a place of slaughter. They're leading their children to a place in which they're going to worship the false idols that they themselves worship, and in the end, everyone's going to die because of it. This isn't good. Now, why this is a fitting judgment is this. The people were worshiping Baal because it was a fertility deity. And if you worship fertility, you will reap infertility. Or if you worship prosperity, in the end, you will reap poverty. And since Israel has chosen to worship a nature God, God is going to use nature as his agent of judgment. Their idol will be their undoing. It's like those whose idol is security, for instance. God will, in the end, make you insecure in order to get your attention. Think about it like this. If you're just clamoring, if whatever it is in your life, you're just clamoring, man, I just got to be comfortable and secure. I just want that. I want that so desperately for me and my family. You'll do almost anything to make sure that you're secure, that you don't have any fear about the future, and comfortable, that things are going well and pretty easy. That what God will do is say, fine, you don't want to seek comfort and security in me, but you want to seek it through you controlling your circumstances, so I will give you over to your circumstances and allow you to search for the security and comfort you desire, and you will get the thing you're searching for, but you won't have the feeling of satisfaction that you actually are searching for. In the end, you'll get what you wanted and find yourself miserable in the end. Well, that stinks. Yes, but it's a fitting judgment. God says, fine, if you don't want me, you can have that. But knowing that we were made for God and to be satisfied in him alone 
If you don't want him, then what you do want is to be unsatisfied, all the while being fooled and deceived as though you could be satisfied in something other than him. Now, God already told the people what they could expect. I'm gonna go back to Deuteronomy 28. In this section, you're gonna see the first little uh, slide is all about the blessings that God is gonna have for his people. The second slide will be about the curses, and then the third one and fourth one will be about uh, why this came about. So here's what God does. When he makes the covenant with Israel, remember, it's his people. He's like, I'm for you. You're my people. I've redeemed you. I've set you apart. You will represent me on the, in the world. And then God says to Moses, to the people, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed you, shall you, you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. This is an amazing promise of blessing where God says, I redeemed you out of Israel, not because you deserved it, but by my sheer grace. I have cleaned you off and set you apart as my own people, gave you an identity, and now I'm telling you, go and live in light of everything that I've done for you. Now, remember, I've been saying this throughout Hosea. You and I reverse engineer that where we believe, man, I better behave the right way so that way I can be blessed. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. You're redeemed by God's grace, given a new identity, and called to obey as a way to live in light of the identity, not to secure the identity. I can't tell if you get that, but that's, that's so important. If you will maintain covenant faithfulness in walking in obedience to me, God says there's unbelievable blessing that will be yours. However, we come to that three-letter word, but. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the flock and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. It's almost the exact opposite. Did you see it? Look, I redeemed you. I gave you a new identity and a place among relationship with me, I'm asking you to live in obedience. But if you don't want to be obedient, then don't expect anything good to come your way. So God was very honest about this. He's not like hiding, like secretly, like, I have expectations, but I'm not going to tell you. You better guess. What? That's unloving and hateful. Don't do that. Be forthright, as God is. And yet here's the curse, kind of how or what God will do not only the curses, but, but just, man, just watch this. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of all the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. I need you to pay attention to verse 47. 
because many of us have convinced ourselves that God will be okay so, so long as we grit it out and white knuckle it and just dutifully do what God asked me to do, but you're going kicking and screaming the whole way. And parents, we know exactly what that's like. You ask your kids to do some chores, and they're like, oh, I'll do some chores, and slam in doors, and slam in the cupboard, and slam in the, the garbage can lid, and you're like, okay. And what happens is, by that lack of gladness of heart, the person who commanded the obedience is dishonored. Let me put it this way. Imagine you have a child and you say, um, I need you to take out the trash. And they stop what they're doing and they're like, okay, I would love to take out the trash. One of the things that I'm so appreciative of you, mom and dad, is that you have given me so much. A house, clothes, I got this, I got that. It's the least I can do to take out the trash. <laughs> In fact, I'm so excited to take out the trash. And so they, they, they take out the trash, whistling, skipping, taking out the trash, and they come in, I'm telling you, <laughs> and they tell you, there's nothing that I, I, there's nothing I enjoy more than being obedient. Mom and dad in that moment are so honored. Are they not? Yeah. So why would it be different with God? God, you asked me to do this? I want to do this. It's dumb. God's not honored by that. But instead, if it's like, you're a good father who's given me life and breath and everything else, of course I'll do what you asked me to do. It's my joy to serve you. Then God is honored. So when the people of Israel just kind of like, mm, we're just going to do it. It's our duty. We have to do it. And I don't want to do it, but I have to. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, you're going to serve your enemies. This is why it's so important we cannot, brothers and sisters, make this like divide where our head and our heart are enemies. Or we make our wills as though they're enemies of our heart. Or we make our bodies and our will and our mind and our heart as though they're in competition with each other. God wants all of you to give all of yourself. He wants your will. He wants your body. He wants your mind. He wants your affections. And he wants all of them to be rightly aligned to him so that when he commands, you say, yes, I will command out of the joy and gladness in my heart for all that you have done for me. I'm not trying to earn the abundance of all things. I already have it. And therefore, I'm going to go in response to it in glad obedience to the Lord. So brothers and sisters, we need to check our hearts. Is your heart in your obedience? Emotion. So many people scared of emotion. <laughs> it's not about not having emotions or having an abundance of emotions. Is, uh, is your emotions rightly connected to the truth of who God is? Do you love things in right proportion? Are you glad at the things that God desires you to be glad at? Because here's the warning for Israel and could be a warning for us. He's going to bring a nation against Israel from far away 
They're gonna swoop down like an eagle. Nation of Israel is not gonna know their, uh, their, uh, their language. It's gonna be a hard-faced nation who will not respect people. They're gonna devour everything they have, and in the end, you're gonna perish. Why? Because you won't serve me with gladness of heart. Because you can claim with your mouth that you love me, but if you just do stuff out of raw duty and you feel nothing towards me, you don't love me. And that's what faced Israel. And so Hosea prays, which is a good place to pray. You know, he's like, all right, give them, O Lord. The nation of Israel, uh, give them. But then he's cut off. And he asks this rhetorical question, what will you give? In other words, I don't even know how to pray for these people. Like, Lord, I'm asking you that you would, I don't even know what. I'm not even sure what to pray for. And then he does pray, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Holy smokes, bro. What he's praying for is adversity. Obviously, um, I have it in your notes, but I don't have it on the screen. Amos chapter four talks about all the things that God has done to Israel to get their attention. I've done this and this and this and this and this. And at the end of each little verse, it says, and they refused to turn. They had so many opportunities. So finally, Hosea is saying, look, I guess calamity and adversity, I guess that's all we can ask for in hopes that through the calamity and adversity, you would finally wake up and see your need for God. And many of us have stories like that where it wasn't until adversity came into your life that you kind of went, oh man, what am I doing? Because as C.S. Lewis says, God speaks to us uh, in our blessings and he woos us through our joys, but God speaks most loudly and clearly through our pain. It's God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And so God sometimes gives us adversity to awaken us. Something's off. You need to wake up. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. You notice in verse 15, there's this duality of love-hate. And we don't like the word hate. And so when you see God saying something like, I hate them, like Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, you have to ask yourself the question, whoa, what's going on there? But you and I don't think in terms of covenant. We, we don't think in those terms, so it's difficult for us to understand this. When God talks about he loves certain people or he loves a people, he's talking about in covenantal terms. Jacob I loved because he made a covenant with Jacob. Esau I hated in the sense that I didn't make a covenant with Esau. 
In other words, I made a covenant with Israel that I would be their God and they would be my people. And all they had to do is have covenant faithfulness. Even when they sinned against me, I, I put it in the law that they had offered the sacrifices and then we'd be good. But they didn't even do that. So they're rebelling against my positive commands. They're rebelling against the negative commands. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do this. So all the covenant blessings of Deuteronomy 28, I'm no longer going to give them. It's going to now be as if I hate them rather than love them. Because for God to love, the Hebrew word hesed means covenant faithfulness or steadfast love. And God's saying, since they don't want to be in the covenant with me anymore, fine. I will withdraw myself. And what they will feel by my withdrawal is no longer my love, but it will feel as though they are being hated. And it all began in a place called Gilgal. Now, what is that about? Gilgal has a very checkered past, which means some good things, some bad things. There's uh, a lot here I could talk about, so I'm going to do this pretty quickly. Gilgal began as a very good city, a very, little, very good area. In fact, it's the first place where the nation of Israel, at the edge of the Promised Land, they cross the Jordan River, and the Jordan River stops, and, they, and all the priests through the Ark of the Covenant, they walk through on dry land, and they stop on the other side of the Jordan River, and there they set up 12 stones, stones of remembrance. In English, old English, we call that Ebenezer. And we sing that song, here I raise my Ebenezer, and you all sing it and have no idea what you're talking about. But anyways, <laughs> what it means is a stone of remembrance. So they raise their 12 stones of remembrance on the other side of the Jordan River as they first begin to take the promised land. And they worship God for his grace and for his provision and his, for his protection. It was an amazing time of worship and gratitude. And then that's in Joshua 4. So then we go to Joshua 5 and the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I've brought the entire nation into the promised land. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The word Gilgal sounds in Hebrew a lot like the verb to roll. And so God says, I'm rolling away your enemies I'm freeing you from bondage and I'm bringing you into the promised land. The place where that all began is a place called Gilgal. And then when the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. There they are, worshiping the Lord, so thankful, so grateful, so overcome with emotion that God has been so good to them. And then as you fast forward into books like 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 13, two things go terribly wrong, and then it's all downhill from there. In chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, that is where King Saul is first anointed as the king over Israel. As you remember, King Saul was not meant to be the king. In fact, the people of Israel didn't want God as their king anymore. They wanted a king like the other nations, and so they raised up a guy named Saul. Saul becomes king, and he doesn't do a very good job of leading the people. In fact, in 1 Samuel 13, a guy named Samuel, who's the prophet, tells Saul to wait until he arrives in Gilgal to offer this sacrifice. And when he offers the sacrifice at the exact moment, God will provide for them what they needed. But Saul becomes impatient, and the people begin to murmur, come on, Saul, you're going to do anything? What's going on? And so in his impatience and because of his fear of the people, he offers an unlawful sacrifice 
And when he does that, Samuel finally shows up and says, what have you done? Why didn't you wait? And he said, I couldn't wait anymore. The people, man, they're bossy. And so Samuel tells Saul, then you will no longer be king over Israel. So Gilgal has this very checkered past. It was a place where the people first were celebrating all that God has done. We love you, Lord. You provided for us. You're our everything. And then a few generations later, like, we don't want nothing to do with God being our king. We need to be like the other nations. Let's get God out of the way. So much so that in Hosea's time, in the same time as Amos, Gilgal became a mockery. So here's, you should read this in a sarcastic tone. Come to Bethel. And you know what Bethel means? The house of God. Beth, El. Beth means house. El is God. Come to Bethel. And you would expect, come to the house of God and let's worship. But instead it's, come to Bethel and sin. Wait, what? Yeah, come to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Because the people had begun to worship God in such foul and disgusting ways that when they did go to Bethel and Gilgal to worship God, they did not actually worship God. They just multiplied their sin. It was horrible. And so now it became this mock, mocking kind of thing. Hey, yeah, let's go, let's go to church today so we can go sin our brains out. All right. It became a very horrible place. And so when you look at verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because in Gilgal, they chose King Saul over me. And so I began to withdraw. And from that one choice of rejecting me, all kinds of other evils are beginning to emerge. It's just like the Garden of Eden. It was one no from Adam and Eve, and then everything else began to spiral out of control. It was that one forsaking of God, and then everything else is happening. And so Ephraim is stricken. They're no longer gonna bear fruit because if you don't abide in God's covenant, you're not gonna bear the fruit that God promises. And even when you do bear children, they're not gonna last because Assyria is gonna come and there's gonna be war and it's not gonna be pretty. And in the end, God, verse 17, is gonna reject them. But it's not all bad. Not every single person will die. There will be a remnant of wanderers, of wanderers. And those wanderers, we come, by the time we get to the New Testament, we understand these people in the northern kingdom who end up staying and, uh, you know, having children and whatnot, they become known as the Samaritans. And in the New Testament, the Samaritans are not very liked people. So that's your future. You're gonna be judged. God is gonna forsake you. He's gonna take away everything that you think is good in life. He's gonna try to awaken you by calamity and by adversity. And in the end, you're gonna be left all alone because that's what you want, really. You don't want God. And so he, being the good God he is, will give you exactly what you want. You don't want me? Fine. Here you go. That is dark. <laughs> and that is no fun. And it's exactly at this place that what I wanna do right now is I wanna stop and I want to show us how this particular text points us forward to Jesus in anticipation. And as we read the rest of chapter 10, you'll see how it actually makes sense of 
why Jesus talks the way he does about who he is and why he's come. So thinking about the forsakenness that Israel is experiencing because of disobedience, think back to when Jesus was hanging naked and bloody on a cross. Remember that time, it was the ninth hour. Jesus was crying out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the climax of forsakenness, the most clear and greatest example of being forsaken is when Jesus was hanging bloody and naked on a cross. Why? Why is that the climax of God forsakenness? It's this reason. Because Jesus is the only person who has ever lived who is completely sinless. He is the one person in all the world of any person who has ever lived who actually deserves the fullness of covenant blessings. When God says, if you do everything I say, boom, blessing. None of us are able to do that. None of us ever have done that. And none of us deserve any of God's blessing. And yet one person, Jesus Christ, is the one person who actually did obey in every imaginable way. And is the one person in all the universe who deserves the full blessing of God. And yet what do we see at the cross? Is it full blessing? Instead of full blessing, what we see at the cross is curse. Instead of fullness, we see emptiness. Instead of God's presence and abundance, we see God's forsakenness. Now why? Why is it that Jesus, who deserves all blessing, why is he hanging naked and bloody on a cross? It's because all who rely on the works of the law, everyone who depends on obedience to God's law, ultimately they're gonna be cursed. And the reason is not because there's anything faulty with the law, it's because every single one of us disobeys the law. And it says, it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if Jesus, who is the one person that deserves all the blessing of God, is actually experiencing the full curse of God, does that mean he disobeyed? And the answer is clearly no. Even his enemies couldn't find fault with Jesus. And he's told, we're told repeatedly in the New Testament that he was one without sin. So why is it that Jesus hung bloody and naked on a cross, deserving full blessing but experiencing full curse? It is because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So the answer to why did Jesus receive God-forsakenness rather than God-blessedness is because Jesus substituted himself in our place in order that he would bear the cross of curse that we deserve. You and I are the lawbreakers, not him. And yet he willingly and joyfully 
endured the cross and experienced the fullness of God forsakenness in order that we who deserve nothing but God forsakenness would experience nothing but God blessedness. And so the result is that the covenant curses that hang over all of our heads are totally done away with because they've been poured out on Jesus in order that you and I get the pouring out of God's overflowing covenant blessings. God's judgment is falling upon Jesus in our place. Therefore, it frees us from ever having to face the threat of God's condemnation. So when we see the nation of Israel not repenting, not turning to God, turning their hearts even harder away from God. We don't want you. This is the time in which we should turn our gaze to Jesus. And before any of us ask God to do it, he supplied Jesus Christ for us to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to secure for us all the covenant blessings that are not rightly ours. But he did it by sheer grace. And if that doesn't compel you to repent and believe in Jesus, nothing will. Maybe only calamity. And so we see in Israel this story. Don't be like Israel. Instead, see God's love for you. See God's grace for you. See God's mercy for you. In Jesus Christ, who willingly and joyfully substituted himself in your place to give you everything, though you deserve nothing. And if you do that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus by faith. You don't have to worry about any of these things that we read about. They're going to pass you over because Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that death would pass us over. <sighs> so it's time to seek the Lord. Since the day of punishment had come for Israel, we read that in chapter 9, verse 7, the day of punishment has come, the day of recompense has come, Israel is going to know it. The people of Israel need to start being serious about seeking the Lord. And the reality is they have committed themselves to false worship because they have a false heart. But their false worship and their false heart is going to result in true judgment. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built and his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So what God is doing here through Hosea is he's giving them an opportunity once again to repent. Here's Israel. He calls them a luxurious vine bearing much fruit. But if you notice in chapter, 10, or chapter 9, verse 16, they bear no fruit. But now in chapter 10, verse 1, they do bear fruit. What's going on? Well, verse 2 helps us. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. So the fruit that they are bearing is the fruit of sin. It's the fruit of faithlessness. 
What we mean by that is they've been sowing seeds of worship to a false god named Baal, who's a Canaanite deity, a fertility god. And since they sow seeds of desire for prosperity and fertility and sexuality, they're going to reap no sex and no uh, children and no fruit of the fields and definitely no prosperity. But what's interesting is Israel has believed that their increase in crops and cattle and children has actually been by the hand of their false god, Baal, and not from the hand of God himself. So let me show you this. Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. When you go back in your Bible, it says this, that Israel did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they use for Baal. So here it is. God is the one who provides the grain, the wine, the oil, the silver, and the gold. But when Israel was being provided those things by God himself, they actually interpreted the accumulation and the reception of these good gifts as coming from the hand of the false God, not the true God. And that mistake in misinterpretation caused them to look at their situation and go, wait a minute. Man, the more that we worship this false god Baal, the more the crops grow, the children come, and I got an idea. Let's make more altars to worship Baal. Let's make more pillars. And the more money we get and the more prosperous we become, think about it. We can have great infrastructure. We can increase our city. We can make it beautiful. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And so that's what they do. They kept worshiping Baal. And as they kept worshiping Baal, God continued to give them by his grace and mercy the things that they needed for life. But now God says, no more. They're going to bear their guilt. And God is going to break down their altars and destroy their pillars. You see, God was very clear about this. He says in Deuteronomy 8, you need to understand, I'm going to discipline you if I need to because I love you as a son and I'm your father and so I'm going to discipline you. He says this in verse 11, so take care. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied... Then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware. Beware lest you say in your heart, no, no, my power and the might of my hands have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. What God's saying is, man, I'm bringing you into a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm giving you blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But if you misinterpret and mistake all of this good provisions as coming from your own self-sufficiency and power and wits and smartness and education... You are mistaken, and I'm going to take my stuff back. Uh Uh-oh. 
You've been warned, Israel. And you and I today, we, we would do well to heed this warning. Many of us choose to not give God the credit or give God the glory or give God the praise that is due for all the provisions he gives us. We misinterpret and mistake the idea that no, 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 no. My work ethic, my education, my money, that's what's done it. God is just a supporting character in the life story that's my story. And God says, okay, then give me my money back. Give me my car back. Give me my health back. Give me my breath back. Because you and I don't even realize we're living on borrowed breath. <laughs> and if it wasn't a part, if, if it wasn't for God's grace, we'd be done. And so Israel continues to exhibit faithless behavior. Look at this in verse three and four. You see, now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. So God will take away their king, as he said uh, is going to happen in verse 15 of chapter nine. But, but here's the people, they're like, they're, this is all good. We don't need a king. What can he do for us? The rest of verse three. We don't need a king anyway, man. We got to figure it out. We don't need no king. I'm killing it. I got all my side hustles. I'm making straight loot. I don't need kings. And so they utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. In other words, they lie so much that when they sign contracts and covenants and they do business dealings, they're kind of like, you've probably seen this in the movies or whatever, they, they cross their fingers behind their back or they wink, wink. They have no intention on honoring that contract. They're just lying. Oh, yeah, I'll pay you. Yeah. Yeah, I'll pay you, this guy. I'm not going to pay this guy. And it's horrible. So then judgments spring up, like lawsuits spring up everywhere. In fact, in verse 5 uh, through 5 and 6, the inhabitants of Samaria, that is the people who live in the northern kingdom, the capital of which is Samaria, they tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its peoples mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it in its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried away, carried away to Assyria and become a tribute to the great king, and they will be put to shame. Now, you didn't laugh at that verse, and there's a reason why. Let me unpack it for you, because this is hilarious. The inhabitants of Samaria, the people who live in the capital in the northern area, they had this idol called the calf of Beth-El. And it was a golden calf, and they all came to worship it in Beth-El, which is the house of God. But because they worshiped this false god, this golden calf, it became a joke that they renamed Bethel Beth-Avon. And Beth means house, and Avon means wickedness or worthlessness. So Bethel, the house of God, has become the house of worthlessness. And it's because this calf is there and all the people were worshiping it. Now think about it like this. They created the golden calf on purpose. It was supposed to represent how they were brought out of Egypt. The golden calf is supposed to represent the God who provides them with their crops, who gives them families, who gives them all the wealth, who gives them all this stuff. It's a powerful God. It's the one who gives life to everything. And yet here are the people not bowing down, trembling before their God, going, wow, you're an amazing God. 
Instead, they are trembling for the calf. Its people are mourning for it. (laughs) Why? Because it's being threatened. Now, this should make us fall out of our pews in a fit of giggles. Because here's these people going, this is our God. And yet they're sitting around going, I'm so scared for our God. It might be taken away. It might be stolen. Somebody might do something naughty to our God. And we need to protect our God. What kind of God do you serve that you're afraid of it being messed with? And so here's this shocking thing. You have God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, who spoke into existence everything that exists by a mere whisper. And the people don't tremble before it, but instead they're trembling like, we got to protect our little God that can't do anything. And they're so deceived and they're so lost that they don't understand their own trembling should show them that their false God is not a real God. But they don't see it. And you and I do the same kind of thing even today. Many of us tremble at the thought of our false gods and idols being threatened and taken from us. Oh, don't take my security. Oh, don't take my approval. Oh, don't take my comfort. Don't take my ease. Don't take my family. Don't take my car. Don't take this. And so we tremble and we quiver and we do all that we can to protect our little God, our little comfort God. And what I loved about the last two years, we're about to celebrate two years of COVID. But one of the things I'm so appreciative of is this. During the last two years, many of us have actually had our idols exposed. And we have quivered and we have quaked and we have trembled because some things that we love more than life itself were being threatened. My comfort, my security, my ease, my hope for the future, all of this is thrown into question. I don't know what to do. I gotta protect my comfort. I gotta protect my ease. And if anyone threatens my little God, I'm gonna attack you. And yet at the same time, shouldn't we fall out of our chairs as we think back to that and go, what in the world was I thinking? If I'm so consumed by this world that my little God of comfort and safety and security is being threatened so I tremble, have I forgotten and lost perspective that I, through Christ, am a citizen of the kingdom of God, as Hebrews 12 says, which cannot be shaken? And so even if my job is threatened, even if my health is scarce, even if security is no more and I have no more comfort and ease and safety anymore, don't I realize that the kingdom of God cannot be shaken? And so I don't need to fear. I don't need to worry. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize if you place your hope and trust in these finite, simple, of this world kind of stuff, going to end up being miserable because it'll never come through for you. God is offering a kingdom which is eternal, which cannot be shaken, of which even when our lives are threatened, even when our health is compromised, even when our job is being threatened, even when rising gas prices, 
we can still go, wait a minute. My God reigns. And my God is the provider, the protector. My God has allowed me to inherit a kingdom that can't be shaken. Why am I freaking out about gas prices? In the long view, it's not going to matter. So the judgment is coming because they quake and quiver and they tremble to protect their little God. And many of us do the same thing. Samaria's king shall perish, verse 7 and 8, like a twig on the face of the waters, the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. And thorns and thistles shall grow up in their altars. Thorns and thistles, that's the phrase of Genesis 3, which is the conclusion of how sin ravages the world. God is going to ravage sin. (laughs) What a cool thought. Sin ravaged the world, and now God is going to ravage sin. Mm, Good. And yet when God's judgment comes, the people who will not repent, they will say, verse 8, they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us, which is what Jesus talked about in the last days. There are, there's coming a day, brothers and sisters, when people will feel blessed because they are barren in the wombs that never bore children and the breasts that never nursed. See the wombs and, and, and breasts? That, that's the same thing as Hosea chapter 9, verse 14. You see, Jesus is pointing to the fact that there's coming a judgment day. And the people who will experience God's judgment will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and on the hills, cover us. Because no one will be able to endure God's wrath. Even though people think they can, you can't. And so we see in verse 9 through 11, from the days of Gebeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Meaning the sins that were in Gebeah continue to this day. And shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gebeah? God says, when I please, I will discipline them. The nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. And I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. You see, what God says is the sins of Gebeah are continuing today. And that's why I'm punishing you. Now, we don't have enough time to do this, but the history of Israel in the city of Gebeah is atrocious. I, because there's kids here, um, I'm not going to read it. But let me paraphrase it and talk about it. Um, if you're, you could read it yourself, Judges 19 to 21, okay? Uh, this is, to my knowledge, probably... You didn't hear it as a kid if you went to Sunday school. It's not any verses that you will memorize in Awana. Uh, It's the section of the Bible that many of us probably don't even know exists. So let me briefly tell you this horrific story. We read about a man uh, who's a Levite. That is from the clan of the priests. He had a concubine. Already we're in bad, bad water. A concubine is a woman who acts like a wife but isn't legally his wife. And so they're traveling together and they're nearing the end of the day, so they decide to spend the night in a town called Gebeah, which is a city in the tribe of Benjamin, just outside of Jerusalem. Since there is no hotels in that day, what they had to do is they had to go to the open square of the city and they had to await somebody to invite them to their home. Someone had to share hospitality with them or else they had to sleep outside. And so an old man comes walking through 
and he sees them sitting in the town center and he invites them to his house. In the middle of the night, as they're sleeping, a bunch of drunk men from the town come to the old man's house and they knock on the door and they ask for the Levite man to be brought outside so they can gang rape him. Now, in response, the old man and the Levite, they go, whoa, whoa, we're not doing that. So instead, they throw out the man's concubine and these drunken men abuse her all night until she is killed. And she's left on the threshold of the door of the house. In the morning, the Levite man opens the door, tells the woman, get up, let's go, and realizes she's dead. Enraged, he cuts her up into 12 pieces, sends those 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel, and says, how dare you do this? Then the nation of Israel assembled as one man, and they inquire of God, what should we do? And God says, you have to have justice. We can't have this kind of stuff happening in our, in our nation. And so the people of Israel came together and they attacked the tribe of Benjamin for this heinous crime, but the people were so bloodthirsty that they went further than what God had allowed and they enact severe, severe bloodshed, almost where they wiped out the entire tribe. Now, the very last verse of this section of Judges, here's what it says. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, how could something like this happen in a civilized society? And the answer is, this is what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. What do you expect? There's no law, there's no God, and there's no way to, to restrain people from just following their evil desires. And so we read in verse 10 that it's God's sovereign will, prerogative, to discipline them when he chooses, and he's gonna bring Assyria from the north in 722 B.C. to wipe out Israel because these kinds of sins weren't just a one-time deal. In verse, 10, or verse 9, they continued there was all kinds of murder and bloodshed and rape and mistreatment of women and horrible things taking place in Israel. It just kept going and going and going. And God says, we're done with this. And so he's going to restrain them, put a yoke on them. We're gonna skip down to verse 13 and 15. We'll come back to 12 in a second. And what God says in verse 13 is that you haven't plowed, you have sown iniquity, and that is why you are reaping injustice. When you chose to forsake me, all kinds of evils come. So don't sit here and be like, how did this happen? You know how this happened. You have sown sin and now you're reaping evil as a consequence. Don't be surprised or shocked by it. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted, look at this, because you have trusted in your own way. In the multitude of the warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall rise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers are dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. You see, it was self-reliance that led Israel to become the kind of nation it had become. In essence, look at this. Israel began to trust in their own way. They were doing whatever is right in their own eyes. So let me say it this way. Whatever it is you trust for your security, hope, and purpose in your life is your God. 
and that is your functional theology. Let me say it again. Whatever it is you trust in your life for your security, hope, or purpose in life, that is your God, and that is your functional theology. What is a functional God or functional theology? You can say one thing, but functionally, not with your words, but with your life, you do another thing. So Israel, if you ask them, what is your God? What is he like? And how do you live? They would say, yes, Yahweh is my God. Yes, we believe. We believe we're covenant people. Yay. But by their actions, functionally, Baal was their God. Prosperity was their God. Comfort was their God. Many of us here would probably, if asked, who is your God or what is your God, we'd probably say, God is my God. In Jesus Christ, he's my God. But perhaps functionally, he's not. Here's what I mean. Parents, let me ask you this question. This is what I've been asking all week on myself. As you think about your child's future, what is it exactly that you are trusting that will protect, provide, or secure their future? What is it exactly? And as I thought about that question, I started to realize, oh man, I think I've actually bought into the lie as a dad that what secures my child's future is making sure they go to college, making sure they try to find a good job, making sure that they understand how money is to be used wisely so they can secure for themselves a place to live and provide for themselves and you know, save and retire and all that kind of stuff. And God didn't really factor in. And it shocked me. And I don't know, parents, if you're in the same boat as I am. But in that moment, what is my functional God when it comes to my kid's future? Me. I will teach them. I will do whatever I can for them. I will make sure. I will, I will, I will, I will. And students, what is it that you're thinking as you think about your future what is it that you're trusting for your sense of purpose in life? Are you trusting education? Are you trusting money? Are you trusting whatever? And the reality is, if we're not ultimately trusting God, then we functionally are worshiping something other than God. And this hits home. Maybe I'm the only one, but this hits home. I skipped verse 12. Now let's go back to verse 12. Because here's where the hope comes. This is, where, this is, oh, it's good. Here's what Hosea says. Three commands and two promises. Command one, sow for yourselves righteousness. The way the Hebrew construction is, the word righteousness doesn't mean like morality or ethics. What it means is faithfulness. In other words, sow for yourselves covenant faithfulness. Don't abandon or forsake God. The second command is break up fallow ground. Fallow ground is ground that hasn't been harvested. It hasn't been uh, tilled. It's rock hard and, and no seeds could penetrate. There's gonna be no fruit that grows there. So break up your fallow ground. Your hard heart cannot sow seeds. You need to till it. You need to repent. Third command, it is time to seek the Lord. It's go time. 
We can't keep playing games. It's go time. So the first command, stay true to God. Abide in him. Second command, break up the hardness of your heart. Repent, acknowledge your sin, confess, and come clean with it. The third command, turn from your sin of self-sufficiency and turn toward God in dependency and trust. Now, what is the incentive of this? There's two promises he gives. Firstly is this. You will reap steadfast love. If you will keep covenant faithfulness and abide in God, you will reap the unconditional love of God. That will be yours permanently, forever, and inexhaustibly. It's yours if you just stay true to the Lord. The second promise is when you break up the hardness of your heart in repentance, acknowledging your guilt, and you seek the Lord, he's going to come and he's going to rain righteousness upon you. And the words rain righteousness is actually ethical or moral. You will do the things God has asked you to do. So what does it look like if you were to obey these commands based on these two promises? Let's go back to the security thing. What are you trusting in for the security of your future? As I look to my future or the future of my kids, what am I looking to? I'm either looking to me and my own creativity or wisdom, or I can sow seeds of righteousness. I can stay faithful and abide in God, and instead I can say, God, you're for me. And I know you're not against me, and I know whatever adversity I experience or my kids will experience, you will use it for your good and for my good, ultimately for your glory. Even bad decisions will be turned around for your purposes. Nothing is going to befall me that is not according to your will. Not even a hair of my head is going to fall apart from your will. So therefore, I trust you. There's no such thing as the right school for you, high school students. You can go to any college and God can use you. Be free of the burden. You can do it. You can live anywhere. Do about anything. And God can bless that and use that. And you can be secure in him through it. Be free. And what is my hope for the future? My hope is it in me and my wisdom No, my hope is in a God who's promised to never leave me nor forsake me because I am in Christ by faith who has given me hope that all of the unblushing promises of the covenant are mine and they are yes in Jesus Christ. And so God will come through for me. I can take it to the bank. Now, what is my value as a person? I'm made in the image of God. Not only that, but I'm being renewed in the image of God. My value as a person is not what you all think of me. My value as a person is not based on my performance or what I've achieved. My value as a person is I bear the image of my creator, and I'm being renewed in that image in Jesus Christ. And because of that, I know that I am precious, for I am bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I am God's, and he is mine And therefore, I am secure in him, having all the approval and acceptance I could ever dream of, for God is always my yes. You have the promise, brothers and sisters, that God will come and rain righteousness upon you. One day you will dwell in a place where there's no more death, no more disease, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more injustices, no more hate, and no more tears. A place of new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. 
So sow yourselves righteousness, covenant faithfulness. You will reap steadfast love. God will come and rain righteousness upon you. Repent and break up your hard heart and seek him. It's go time. Can't play games. And the last thing I want to do is this. In Hosea 9 and 10, we saw this vine image. We saw this like bearing fruit image. And what Jesus teaches us in John 15 is he's the true vine that bears true fruit. Not the vine of sin that bears the fruit of sin, but he is the true vine that brings true life. I'm going to just read this, say a couple things, and we're out of here. Because I can see you guys stirring. Here we go. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he's going to take away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear even more fruit. And already, already, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. In other words, you don't become clean by bearing fruit. You're already clean. And because you're already clean by the word, the gospel that I spoke to you, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. It's not the other way around. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So kill your self-sufficiency nonsense. You can't do anything apart from me, Jesus says. But if anyone does not abide in me, he's going to be thrown away like a branch and wither. And the branches that are gathered, they'll be thrown into the fire and they'll be burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove whether or not you are a disciple of Jesus? You bear fruit. And when you bear fruit, you glorify God. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. All right, so how do we abide in Jesus' love? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Let me piece this together for you as we close. Since you have been redeemed, if you have faith in Jesus here this morning, since you have been redeemed through faith in the gospel, that is, you've been cleansed by his word in verse 3, then you are commanded to abide in Christ. That is, sow covenant faithfulness in order for you to bear fruit, verses 4 and 5. And by bearing fruit, you will prove that you are Jesus' disciple and God will be glorified through you, verse 8. Now, abide in Jesus' love. And you do so by keeping his commandment. And what is his commandment? To love God and to love one another. Because when these things are happening, the fullness of God's joy will be in you and your joy will be full. And now you can serve the Lord with gladness of heart. Do you see how it fits together? I believe in the gospel. 
He cleanses me from my sin. And he unites me to himself so that I could bear fruit. And when I bear fruit, I glorify God. And the fruit that I bear is loving God and loving my neighbor. And as I continue to abide in the love he has for me by loving him and loving my neighbor, my joy is going to increase and become so full. And so let's encourage one another and help one another to point our eyes on Jesus. Don't quit. Keep on. God is for you, not against you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for how you have loved us. We thank you, Lord, for how you have graced us with yourself. We thank you, Lord, for how, how the blood of Jesus reminds us of better promises, the promise that you are blessing us in Jesus, and we have no need to fear what this world throws at us. God, thank you for sustaining us through this long service. God, I do pray that it would have been worthwhile just to know you love us more than we ever dared, imagined, or thought possible. God, we are more wicked than we care to admit. And God, from these texts, we confess to you that you are more loving than we ever thought you could be. And so, Father, as we close this service in singing this great song of a fountain filled with blood, that you have redeemed us, that we may go and sin no more. Help us, Lord, to serve you with gladness of heart and loving you supremely, loving others sacrificially, knowing that we have been forgiven and cleansed in Jesus to go and bear fruit. God, help us as a church to keep pointing each other to Jesus, in whom is life, in whom is our everything. In his name we pray, amen.